We are working our way slowly but surely through the life of David. So we're, st- we're in 1 Samuel. This morning we're going to be in particular in chapter 21. And what we're seeing, you guys, if you, if you kind of are getting the story arc of David's life, he's anointed king early on. And then a long time later, he actually becomes king. It's about a 15-year period between the time that God says, you shall be king, and Samuel anoints him, has this kind of ceremony to make it official, and the time that he takes his throne. In that 15-year period of time, what is the dominant feature of David's life? What's that? Running for his life. That's right. Under under assault from whom in particular? Saul, for the most part. I mean, really. And so we're... We're kind of, it's just really ramping up. He's been working in Saul's house in the palace. Saul's twice, is it twice or three times? Tried to stick him to the wall with a spear. Um, and he, what we saw last week is that he has fled. Now, uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is looking at David's life is we're using this as a template to talk about how do we read the Bible seeing Christ as the center of all things. This is one of the deep things that we're trying to impart here. Not just David's life, although that's great, but how does David's life point to Christ? But how does the Old Testament point to Christ? Like, what is the, how do we learn, what kind of skills can we develop to read narrative in particular through this, through this Christ-centered lens? And Kat very sweetly came up and said, so I'm trying to do this when I'm just reading the Old Testament. I'm trying to read it and see how it points to Jesus. And it's hard, right? And that's a pretty fair thing to say. And so she said, you know, so just a little bit like, okay, we're getting, we're doing this every week, but it's really difficult. It's hard to do on your own. So I want to recommend a couple of different things that you might consider if you're trying to do this. First thing, do not be insulted by this, okay? Because this thing is golden. The best primer maybe that I've ever seen for how to read the scriptures Christocentrically is a children's book. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. How many of you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible? Okay. Is it fantastic? For grown-ups, isn't it brilliant? A woman named Sally uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones wrote it. She used to go to church. Maybe she still goes to church at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City where Tim Keller's the pastor. And, and Keller is one of the modern-day geniuses of this. And so I'm sure she learned a lot of stuff from, from Keller. But her book is magnificent. I met her at a conference once. She's this little tiny woman. And she wrote this book. It's just taken the world by storm. And it's, it's a brilliant treatise and how to read the scriptures Christocentrically. But it's written for like five-year-olds, okay? Don't let that discourage you from it. It's, it's brilliant, okay? So the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, hey, Gabothams are here. Delighted to see you guys. Welcome. Good to see your face. Um, pick it up. Just go on Amazon. Uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, and read through it. And I think that will give you some broader categories than just David to read it. Uh, although that is admittedly kind of like a, a childish approach, it's great. If you want to go to the far other side of the spectrum, um, probably the best thing that I've seen in terms of like teaching you how to do this is a, um, is a teaching series that's available for free through I, iTunes has this thing called, I think it's iTunes U, iTunes University. Am I remembering that correctly? iTunes University, iTunes U. Um, and uh, just look for Tim Keller and Ed Clowney. They have a class called I think it's like preaching Christ in a postmodern context or something like that. Preaching Christ, Christ postmodern um, at Keller and Clowney. That is a seminary level course. And so we range from, this is for fifth graders to this is for like seminary guys, okay? But those two resources are somewhere in there. And what this class is trying to be in between are, are great things to help you kind of embody this skill and grow in it. But don't lose heart that it's hard. Everything's hard when you don't know how to do it. But it gets easier 
as you learn, right? So just be bad at it. That's okay. You're allowed to be bad at things. You're allowed to fall down when you're skiing, right? That's how you learn to ski, right? Something in between maybe the Bible project. That's kind of their focus. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, the Bible Project, they've got a million videos on you. If you just go on YouTube and search for the Bible Project, or it's probably BibleProject.com or something, if you just Google them, they do a great job. Their teaching is really solid, and they're going to come from the same vantage point that we're trying to do. So just a few things. If you're just over, this, over Christmas break, if you want to try to get your head around some of this stuff, those guys could be helpful to you. Okay? All right, so we are in 1 Samuel 21, and does anybody remember where we let off last week? What's going down in David's life as of 1 Samuel chapter 20? What was that about? He's running. And in particular, what's the big climactic moment there? Jonathan. Saying goodbye to Jonathan. What were you saying, Kat? Jonathan saved me. Yep, that's right. And so Jonathan does this whole thing where he launches arrows and says they're far away, run, go away. And they have this very heartfelt, teary goodbye. And so David's on his own. He's been, he's been under assault, but he's been under assault at least in the context of community and now it's time to go. And off he goes. And as you may, you may have experienced something like this, that when you're on your own, when you're all alone and when you're scared, you might make some weird decisions. You might even make some questionable decisions. We can talk a little bit about how we, how we assess the way David goes. But this is where he goes and he's off. All right. And it's going to be pretty yucky for him and for some others as well. So 1 Samuel 21 verse 1. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Okay, why do you think Ahimelech is trembling? It seems like we understand why David would be trembling, but why is the priest freaked out by this? Do you have any sense from context or where we've been, what's going down? He's scared of the king. Fear of the king? Okay, what would he fear about the king, Cat, at this point in the story? Not to do anything like that. Wait, what do you mean? Okay, yeah, work, work, work it out. So what is he afraid of and why? Because we don't have a, he doesn't have a lot of context clues. What do you think's going down with that? Why is he right out of the gate like, whoa, what's up? He's afraid. He didn't want to go okay, Ahimelech didn't want to go against the law. And what do you think he, why might he fear going against, like, what's the clue to him that something's amiss? Kelly? I think the clue is that David's alive. Yeah. David is—he's a high-ranking official in Saul's army. And he's one of Saul's leading men, and suddenly he's out here without Saul because he fallen out of favor. Like I don't like doesn't know that he's going to be at this point. It just—it's just weird to see David, who's the commander of armies, all by himself. That's right. There's something up to me. I don't want to ally myself to this guy. This guy is out of that's right. I think Kelly's exactly right. We don't, he doesn't, Ahimelech does not know that Saul's been throwing spears, that Jonathan's launching arrows. He doesn't know any of those things. But he does know that David's basically in the king's bodyguard, that he should be with the military. He should be doing his job. And instead he shows up, he just shows up. Now, he's, he is alone in this moment, but maybe he's got other people somewhere else. There's actually a little bit of interesting kind of take on whether David's truly alone. But whatever it is, it's not the ordinary circumstance. And so Ahimelech's like, what are you doing here? And also David is a man of blood. David is a scary dude. He is like, you know, he's like the Marines have showed up, but he doesn't have his unit and he's not with his king. And so it's just weird. And so Ahimelech doesn't know what's going down, but he might suspect that something's wonky. Good enough for now? So Ahimelech's weird, okay? And then here's what happens. Verse 2, David answered Ahimelech the priest 
The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Is that tr- is the David, what, what just happened there? Is, that, is David telling the truth? No, 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 no. Does anybody want to say yes? Can we have a cage match? Does anybody want to say yes? <laughs> Commentators are actually a little bit split on this. What, and what, why do you say that he's lying? Those of you that think he's lying. Um, there could have been a motive to protect him. Okay, so, yeah, okay, that's why he's, okay, that's why he's lying. Why do you think he's lying? What did he say that seems false to you? Okay, and what's, what's implied there is the king of Israel, is that King Saul sent him on a mission. So, did King Saul send him on a mission? Absolutely not. No question, right? So, if Ahimelech almost certainly is going to hear his words through that lens, that King Saul sent him on a mission, that's not true. And you could very readily be under team like, he's lying, okay? And I get that. I'm totally down with that. Suzanne? Um, so, in the hierarchy of the kingdom, Jonathan could be considered as speaking with the king's voice. And he's the one who said... Interesting. So, not quite king, but the, the prince sent me on a mission. Go save your life, okay? Although there's a, there's a translation effect from king to prince, but that's actually an interesting take on it. David could be considering himself... Uh, interesting. David could be considering. David knows that he has been anointed as king, right? Very good. King's actions have sent him on Interesting. So the king himself did not verbally tell me to do it, but by his actions, he has compelled me to do it. Yes. Okay. This is all good. There's one other. You guys are getting every other quasi king we could possibly mention, except the one that the commentators tend to suggest is the other framework. Kelly. The king. The king of kings, right? And so do you remember Jonathan says, the Lord has sent you away in the previous chapter? There is a take. No, no I don't think there's any question that David is, is, is being, at the very least, shady in his language, right? Because Ahimelech is absolutely going to hear, Saul sent me on a mission, right? But you can make a case, and I don't really care if you agree with it or not. I'm not even sure if I agree with it. But there is a case to be made that he is on a mission from the Lord, Right? And whom he is identifying as king, albeit in a way that might be a little bit, you know, un- unclear. So somebody sent him away. Was it Yahweh? Was it Saul? Was it himself? Was it Jonathan? I don't know. But he is, he is he's shading his language. Um, he is being cautious. Probably both to preserve his own life from Ahimelech. But also maybe to protect Ahimelech. Giving Ahimelech a little bit of what we call plausible deniability, right? He doesn't want to invoke him in the thing. Catherine? Yes. Well, so there is, it, it could very well be that David is attempting to protect Ahimelech by, by, by limiting his knowledge. Okay. Now, we're going to find out next week that that is not going to work very well at all. Okay. We're, we'll see that, but we'll, we'll get there. There's an ominous note that's about to come. But one way or another, David's in this predicament. Now, let's assume just for the moment that he's just lying. The king is King Saul. Certainly that's how Ahimelech hears it. What do you think about that? Is it 
is there ever a circumstance in which you're allowed to lie? Or is this really the first moment, the first really vivid moment that we begin to see the cracks in David? Is he behaving righteously to protect Ahimelech's life and to save his own? Or is he relying on deception in a, in a kind of a miscarriage of his own trust in the Lord? How, what do you guys think about it? Robin? It reminds me of Abraham and the different times that he went in and lied about Sarah. And they were trying to, he was trying to protect himself. Yes. So I think that that might be a similar thing. It's a, like a knee-jerk, he, David's still a man. And a knee-jerk re, uh, reaction uh, to try to protect himself. And sometimes things come out that you haven't really sat there and thought about what the ramifications of what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think the the parallel you draw, so in case you didn't hear, Robin is saying there's a parallel perhaps, or it's reminiscent of Abraham. He was in a tricky situation. He lied about his wife being his sister, which, frankly, that's so weird. Like, I cannot be like, no, no, Kelly's my, you know, sister. Have her. Like, what? That is so odd. Okay? But there is something, uh, it is reminiscent of that. Somebody's in a tricky situation and we lie. To protect ourselves, okay? But that, all that doing is, is moves it from David to Abraham. Is it okay? Is there ever a circumstance in which you're allowed to lie? Okay, we got a team. Who said yes? Fetzer, you liar. Okay, hang on. And Jennifer? Jennifer's on team no. Okay, now let's go. Why is Andy an evil sinner? <laughs> Okay, so Jesus never lies, and I think this is true. Andy, what's your retort to that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but men do terrible things all the time. I know, I know. I'm just saying that. You want me to defend? Well, is is it your view? If that's if that's your view, yeah. Yeah, I I think it's okay for him to lie. Because under what circumstance? Is there a paradigm of when we can and cannot lie? You're sitting next to an attorney, by the way. Yes. <laughs> you can, yeah, there, there's definitely a, a, a spectrum of when you can and cannot lie. Is there, do you have a clear boundary for us? When my wife says, uh, should I, uh, do I look fine in this? <laughs> Okay, all right. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to let you off the hook now. We're going to move. So, Lily? Um, I I think there's a question of equivocation, and also when someone asks you a question, you can discern what are they really asking. It's like that example of the Nazis saying, are there people in your home? What they're really right. asking is, can we come in your home and kill your guests, right? Your wife is really asking, do you love me? Do you find my appearance acceptable? Is that what you're then communicating in your answer? And so I think, I think it's okay. asking. Like, what is he, what's him a lot really asking? Yeah, okay. And so the so can you, can you tell the truth to the question behind the question if you're deceiving about the front question? This is actually a very, very relevant question. John and then Kelly. She was his sister, which is weird too. Yeah, yes, that's a good point. Kelly? 
Act about ask Acts four. Oh, acts of war. Yeah. Right. Right. So war. So this is great. So war is filled with deception. Right. There are feints. Like before we did the Normandy invasion, we had all sorts of like false information that we put out there that the Germans would believe that we were going to. You know, our, our land incursion was going to take place somewhere else. Sometimes, you know, you'll paint logs to look like cannons to overstate the size of your force. So deception is an absolutely an act of war. Can we, when can we use that? When can we not? This, these are all pretty relevant big questions, which will blow up our entire day if we, it's all we do. But I just want to get you thinking. Stuart? It is war murder. Okay. Killing in war is that. Okay, great. I think that's a so killing, has, there's some kinds of killing that are murder. There are some kinds of killing that are not murder. Then maybe you can take this thing, this thing about the plot. Is it truth? Is it really plot? I mean, I'm not trying to like, play both sides of the fence, but, um, you know, because I know, I'm sure David had some ill intent, because like to Fetzer's point, he was a man. Mm-hmm. He's an archetype of Jesus as well. Yep. But also, I mean, so, yeah, there was probably some... some Yes. It isn't okay to lie, but in this instance, it was probably okay. Okay, so they, so you're coming down on, at the end of the day, you're okay with David, having said something that wasn't really true to Ahimelech. Joel, what do you think? I was going to throw more fuel on the, uh, the murder, it's killing and murder, and is it okay to fire? So some of the biggest failings of Israel in the book of Joshua is they didn't kill enough people. This is true. I think that's true. Feels a little uncomfortable. So, so there is, there are certain. So, so I'm, I'm all about that. There are clear right and wrong. But I do think that right and wrong can be situationally determined. What is, we must do what is right in every situation. But sometimes what is right is not always super obvious to us. Okay. So I'll give you a couple more. Okay, Terry. You know, if I'm, you know, if somebody's comes to my door, you know, is trying to hurt me or my family. You know, and I've got little kids somewhere, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to lie to them. You know, is there anybody in there? Whatever. You know, I would lie to protect, you know, my family. Sure. Okay, so here's, here's what's behind the way that Terry is framing it. There's, there's, there's a couple of different, I'll just give you this in high-level view, and then we'll move on, okay? And you can, you can choose which of these strikes you as more compelling. One, one way that people solve this dilemma is say, they say that more, like, ethical... Um, obligations, moral obligations are not all equivalent to one another but they exist in stacked priority and so if they come into contact with each other, you go with the one that has the greater claim so if it is more important to save a life than it is to deceive, than it is to not deceive then you are allowed to deceive in order to save life, right? So when moral claim, the moral, moral claims don't all have the same weight and that we can, we can rank them relative to one another and choose the greater over the lesser concern. Okay? That's, there, is an, there is a philosophical, ethical uh, solution to this problem. And, you, and that's what you're employing. You're saying saving a life is more important than telling the truth to a, a would-be murderer. And so easy, I'm going to go with the greater rather than the lesser. Okay? And that's, I think that's a legitimate solution. I'm not sure that is the solution, but it might be. And that's one way that frames it out. Okay? And the way in the back. Uh, why don't we just call it embellishment? Embellishment, 
Well, okay, yeah, and so we will do this, right? And so we will often, we don't, we, I, think, I think the reason we call it embellishment is because we're uncomfortable calling it a lie, right? And so let me just do this, and we'll do that. Now, but if we go to that moral stacking or that, you know, embell- even if we use embellishment to label it, we've got to be careful. It, it's, it is more important, and I think it's more important to save a life than to not deceive someone. I think that's true. But very often, I might employ the I'm allowed to deceive, or a person could employ the I'm allowed to deceive over something that is less important than murder, right? It's more important that I don't get in trouble for coming to work late because I overslept, so I'm going to lie about that. And when we play that moral stacking game, sometimes we might be cheating the way we stack the deck on that, okay? Here's one perspective. Here, here we go. Hang on. Here's the other side. The other side is that it's always wrong to lie because God never lies. This is kind of where you're going with Jennifer, right? Is that there's, there's, a, there's a fascinating book called A Lie Never Justified. And I'll, I'll just give you the, the, the punchline for this, and you can consider it, and then we're going to move on with the story. Uh, this guy, there's a, the guy that wrote the book A Lie Never Justified, he argued that there was never, ever, ever a circumstance where we we're allowed to say untrue things because God himself, not only does he not lie, but he cannot lie. In Titus it says he, he's called the unliable God, God who cannot lie that whatever God accomplishes in the world he will do only and always through the truth and never through deception and this guy takes it so far that he is a he's in the he's a civil war POW and it is his position that in order to escape from prison he can murder he can not murder he can kill a guard on the other side of the war because God can justly take life and he often does but he will not lie to him. So rather than create a deception to escape from prison, he would kill this guy in order to escape from prison. Because God takes life all the time, but he's never false. And so he would rank that moral stacking. There's something preeminent and supreme about faithfulness, that our words should always match reality. Okay, so those are your two, those are your two end points of this debate as you kind of think it through. Okay, Lily? So it reminds me of when... The, um, the, the uh, leader of the Assyrian armies is coming against uh, Jerusalem, I suppose. And I guess it was with King Hezekiah and Isaiah, and God sent a deceiving spirit mm-hmm. to the general, to the Sennacherib, I guess. Sennacherib would be the, the king, yeah. And specifically put a rumor in his mind mm-hmm. away from that. And so I think there, that, along with a lot of other biblical stories, gives absolutely foundation to God using... Okay, so this is this is this is interesting. Now we could we could I would put that category. I'll put I would put the dude that um, that has the whole lying spirit. Lily's right. It says that God sends a deceiving spirit, but I put that in the same category that He sends this injurious spirit upon Saul. Remember we saw that um, that God is absolutely free and He uses His freedom to move wicked players around the chessboard to accomplish a good end. Sometimes it's framed out that God can write straight with a crooked stick. Right? So I don't think that, I would not include that as an example that God is lying, but rather he is allowing sinful people, uh, sinful characters to accomplish his, his good purposes. Okay? So we're not going to resolve it right now. I will confess to you, I'm on team truth. Like, I don't ever like anybody lying. I don't ever like saying things that are not true. I think in this situation, David blows it. And we're going to see in the next chapter the humongous consequence the oversized consequence of his lie, okay? So though David is a template of Messiah, 
he ain't the Messiah. And he's going to screw up a whole bunch of stuff before the story is over, okay? I might be wrong. I might be mistaken about that. But I'm on team truth for this, okay? Can we keep going now? All right, Suzanne, you get the last one, then we're moving. I think the question in the context of the passage is, why didn't David say, Saul's trying to kill me, so I'm out of here? Yes, he, could, he had other options he could have pulled, um, other levers he could have pulled. This is what he did, and we'll see again next chapter. It's going to go really, really badly. So let's kind of let that. Sometimes in narrative, narrative doesn't always tell you if something is right or wrong. It just shows you what happened. And what happens from this is really, really ugly. So just bear that in mind. All right, let's keep going. Here's what's going to happen now. Verse 4, the priest answered David. Just apparently he believes him. Uh, or either he suspends disbelief or he just believes. And in verse 4, it says, The priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have, been, have kept themselves from women. Anybody know what the heck he's talking about? I couldn't have bread. Bread and presents. Very good. Okay, you guys know about this a little bit. Okay, so Leviticus, if you want to flip back to it, it's Leviticus 24. So it is the ceremonial structure, is the sacrificial structure set up one there's all kinds, it's a very elaborate system. But one of the things you can read about in Leviticus 24 is that every week the priests were to, were to bake a bunch of bread. You remember how many loaves of bread? Twelve. Why twelve? Twelve tribes, right? So we got we get, we get make 12, 12 loaves of bread and they set them out and they sit there for a week. It's the bread of the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of the week, the priests eat the bread and then they make 12 more loaves. And there's constantly bread there, and they replace it, eat it, make more, replace it, eat it, make more. And this bread is somehow capturing something. I don't, the Bible doesn't really unpack all that's involved there. Um, we could guess, though, why would God, why bread? Why would there be the bread of his presence as opposed to any other thing? Jesus. What's that? Jesus. Okay, so good. So God represents himself in Christ in particular as well, what is, why is Jesus, that pushes it back, why is Jesus the bread? What is bread? Life, it's sustenance, right? There's a pleasure, there's community and fellowship. In some sense, God is saying, meet me at the table, right? There's something about this food and this provision and this kindness and this, the, he's, he's with us. He's here at the table, right? And we will pick up on that theme in, later on in the, in, the, in the story of Christ. We're going to see bread become another factor again. But by whatever means, they make this bread. And so, but it's kind of special bread. And so David says, you got any food? He's like, well, I mean, we got the consecrated bread, but I don't know if I'm allowed to give you that. And David's like, I'm pretty sure you are. And he takes the bread, okay? <laughs> now, as he takes it, as he takes this bread, um, he, he eats and he's happy and he's, he's content with it. That story, that very event that we're looking at, Sam, 1 Samuel 21, gets picked up in the New Testament. Does anybody know where? When does it show up? Becky, you got it? Yes, in the field, that's exactly right. And then who invokes the story? Jesus. It's really odd. It shows up in all the synoptics. In Matthew 12, Mark 2, Luke 6. So 12 divided by 2 is 6. They're all kind of a little kid, okay? In 12, Matthew 12, Luke 2, Matthew, or Mark 6, or Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew 12, Mark 2, Luke 6. Tells a story where Jesus and, the, Jesus and his guys are out in the field and they pick some grain and they're threshing the grain, so to speak, with their hand and they eat it. And then they come and they give him a hard time for basically working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, dude, relax. 
and he quotes this story. Here's how he says it. Go, go to the Mark version. This is interesting. Mark 2, verse 23. Here's, the, here's how Jesus invo- invokes the story. And it's always interesting. When the New Testament talks about the Old Testament, I want to know what they said. Because it's going to give insight. And if Jesus is the one talking about the Old Testament, then I really want to know what he says. Okay? Because this gives us insight into this moment. So two twenty-three, Mark 2, 23. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as, was, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And here's Jesus' response. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat, And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, I think this is a little bit confusing because Jesus strikes me as being very dismissive of the question. Doesn't he seem like he's like, big deal. And you might, does does that strike anybody else as weird? That he seemingly holds these rules very, very lightly. What, what do you think? What is he saying there? What is, Jesus is not high church. Well, I think that's true, Bob. Okay, I don't, I don't know if we're allowed to say that out loud. But, but what do you mean by that? Well, he's, he's always um, looking at the, the focus on what the heart of the matter is, not the rules that have been placed Yes. Did you hear that? Jesus is always going after, what is the core human issue? He's like, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You Pharisees are constantly taking rules and supersizing them and restricting people. But God is providing bread for his people. God was providing bread for David. And so we ought not look look askance at God's kindness and his graciousness and his provision. That's not not all that he's saying, but it's absolutely part of what he is saying. John? It's also Jesus is not Jesus was a It's true. So Jesus is, he tends to be very dismissive of man-made rules, but not dismissive of the, of the, law, of the Lord's rules. But Jesus does acknowledge right here in Matthew 2.26, when he says, In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he, David, entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. Jesus is affirming that that rule was not a man-made pharisaical rule, but that was actually a rule, and yet he was still willing to abrogate it. Why do you think? What, what do you think is, do you have any other insights into what Jesus is doing there? Yeah, Catherine? The Lord, uh, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Yeah. And, um, and he said in there that I, even I'm even the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, see their own uh, 
think, I think you're right. So what, what, hap- what happened with the Pharisees, and we, it's so fun to rip on the Pharisees because we're not them, okay? But, but be wary, right? Because we are, in fact, okay? So the Pharisees get stuck on this external ceremonial observation of things. And what you see is the Old Testament moves into the New. You see this over and over in Jesus. You see it in Paul's writings. Um, In a way that is a little bit startling, a little bit hard for us to maybe get our heads around, is everything that is external in the Old Testament is presented there because we're just thick-headed and stupid. But the goal is that all of it would move internally, right? So when the New Covenant is described, the law is written on tablets of stone. But under the New Covenant, where is the law written? On your heart. Okay, that is an external moving to internal, okay? So stay with me on this. This is really important. The Sabbath laws were very externalized, but by the time Jesus shows up, the way he lives the Sabbath, the way that Paul writes about the Sabbath, it's very, very different. It's all moved inside. And and Paul is not only dismissive, he's explicitly critical of an externalization of these rules, okay? Now there's one place, this is not very well known, it's, it's a little bit obscure, but there's one place in the New Testament, New Testament, where consecrated food is discussed. Does anybody know where the Bible teaches on the consecration of food in the New Testament? Uh, not Corinthians. Robin, do you know? Okay, great. Okay, now to the best of my knowledge, they don't use the language of consecration there, but the, but the idea where you can eat anything, like yes, and that's a and that's a that's an action story meant to say welcome the Gentiles into the table, right? Well, let, let the Gentiles come, and so there is a sense of meal eating, right, and all this thing. That's that's all true, but the language of consecrated food, consecrated. Uh, meals is in First Timothy chapter four. Watch how this works. Okay, look how non-religious this is. Look how non-fancy pants ceremonial Levitical this is. Okay, go to First Timothy chapter four. Now, this this might take just a second to kind of unpack, but I think it'll be worth it when we get there. In First Timothy four, Paul is dealing with people that come up and they've got all these rules. They're all these jot and tittle. You can do this. You can't do that. It's very particular, very external. And Paul's got no time for any of that, okay? So in 1 Timothy, we'll pick it up in verse 3. 1 Timothy 4, 3, he's talking about these rule types, these ceremonial types, these religious types, and he's ripping on it. In verse 4, 3, he says, They forbid people to marry, and they order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Okay? This will become more clear as we go. But as he says this, listen to his phrasing. There's a two-step dance going on in verse 3. Number one, God creates something. And then number two, we receive it with thanksgiving. Okay? So God has a role. We have a role. God creates something that is good. And then we receive it. But when we receive it, we receive it in a particular way. And what is that particular way? With thanksgiving. Okay, Tara, are you good? When, when um, in Matthew, when, um, when he's, uh, excuse me, in Mark, when he's talking about this, when Christ is talking about this, he does say David and his. Yes, I know he does. Okay, yes. And so we'll come back. But hang on, don't, I, don't wanna, that's gonna, I don't think that's going to advance our, what we're trying to do in First Timothy 4. So hold that for a moment, okay? So number one, God creates. Number two, we receive with thanksgiving. That's in verse three. You see it there, right? That happens again in verse 4. For everything that God created is good. We have a good creation. And nothing is to be rejected if 
it is received with thanksgiving. Two steps. God creates something good, we receive it with thanksgiving. God creates it good, we receive it with thanksgiving. The third time, though, he's going to change the language. Verse 5. Because it is consecrated, that's our term, that's what we're looking for, by number one, the word of God, that is, don't think scripture there, that is God's creative word. That God says, let there be light, and there is light. God creates by his word. So how do things get consecrated? Well, step one is God creates it by his word. And then step two is by prayer. That is that prayer of thanksgiving. So the two-step dance is God creates something good, we receive it gratefully. God creates it good, we receive it with thanksgiving. By the word of his power he makes, and we pray our offering of thanks. And that is what consecrates it. Okay, So things are set apart. Things are made whole. in the New Testament. The way that we consecrate the bread, he makes it good. We receive it gratefully and the circle is completed. Make sense? Got it? It's not, a, it's not a Levitical framing of things. It is, and this is how the New Testament is consistent. Everything that once was external has moved internal. And we, it's we are the consecrators. He makes it good, but we make it holy when we receive it with thanksgiving. When through our prayer we enter in and recognize this is a gift. All is gift. And we are invited into this dance, this partnership with him. He creates it good. We receive it with thanks. And it is holy. That's kind of beautiful. And that's, I think, probably part of what's going on with Jesus' response. That David was gratefully receiving what God had made good. And it is intact. Dig it? Okay, there are a couple of hands. Andy, but there was one over here first, I thought. Jennifer, and then back to Andy. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it makes me think of, in the, in the Old Testament, there's the temple, and we're apart from the temple, and only the priesthood building. But in the New Testament, we are the church, and it is definitely much more internalized. Amen. That's exactly it. That it's so internalized that he, he internalizes himself into us. We become the temple. We are the place where he dwells. And so the... The stand-apartness, the holiness of God, which is never not true, has somehow been subsumed in the intimacy of God, that we would be one with him. It's bonkers. Crazy. Fetz. Well, we don't have to go into this too much, but can a non-priest then consecrate the, 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 uh, the bread and wine? Um, uh, so that's, that is more of a question that would be determined in individual church context, not in an Anglican context. Um, Anglican church is going to have a higher view of, of that thing. Some, some Christian traditions would say, yeah, of course, absolutely. And so there's a range of, of, of how different churches through the years have kind of experienced and set up their own parameters within that. But I would say that the, this text um, is, is framing out the, the, the broad invitation for the people of God to partner, partner with him in gratefully receiving the good things he made. Make sense? Okay. Lily, and then we're going to try to finish the chapter. So David, as with the grain, I mean, as with the bread, but also as with the tabernacle, how he treated the tabernacle, kind of, um, I, I don't know if this is going to make sense, circumvented the law through his love of God. So actually in the way that, so this is kind of going back to what we were talking about, um, the, the hierarchy of truth and morality. Yeah. The highest is the position of our hearts in love toward God, which is in part why David got away with so much that he got away with because he was the man after God's own. Yes, yes. But uh, the only, I, would, I would agree with so much of that. The only thing I would maybe put an asterisk on is I don't know how much he got away with. Because I think a lot of, David makes a lot of missteps. And 
it has a ruinous consequence in a thousand different ways. So there are things that he did that perhaps because his heart was right with the Lord, there was, he, was, he was capturing the real heart of it. But there's other things he did that were just wrong and that he needed to be forgiven of and for which Christ died because it was like brought ruinous effects on the lives of many. You know? That's right. I agree, I agree with that. Tommy, did you want to say something too? Oh, yeah. I was just, I'm going to say um, to your earlier point about, um, about the, David was speaking the truth where he was talking about you know, the king of kings as opposed to King Saul, um, uh, that he was on a secret mission for him. It just struck me that um, Jesus, um, in calling this out, is he not also um, perhaps subtly implying he's on a secret mission by the king of kings, that he is also in this yeah, so, so certainly what Jesus is doing is not just saying in general nobody has to follow the rules, but Jesus is saying David, was, David, had, a, David had an anointing, there's something special going on there, and Jesus is saying, listen, if, if you're not going to give David a hard time for eating the, the showbread, why are you giving me a hard time for eating grain? For I'm greater than David. His ultimate argument is that he is greater than David, right? But within the midst of it, we can see all these different things. Okay, we're going to keep going because I want to I get through a couple more things, and then we're going to go. Watch this. Verse 7, it's supposed to be ominous, all right? Now... One of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. No comment, it's just there. <laughs> but something bad's going to happen, okay? So David thinks he's being furtive. He thinks he's being secretive. He thinks he's getting away with it. But Doeg was there. And by the way, Doeg is an Edomite. We hiss at the Edomites. We don't like the Edomites. Edomites are bad guys, Okay. The Edomites are going to get blown up altogether under Obadiah. is going to describe the ruin of them. They're descendants of Esau. They're the bad guys. Saul's the bad guy. We're just stacking on bad guy, bad guy, bad guy. Something bad's going to happen. That's what's going down in verse 7. Kelly? And the peculiar thing is he's, he's an Edomite. He should be a bad guy to Saul, too. He should be. That's what's, it's not just that Saul and Doeg are on the same team. They are on the same team. They're both bad guys. But how did Doeg end up being Saul's head shepherd? It's very strange. But weren't we warned? Yes, exactly right. It's, just, it's, it's a strange thing. And Doeg is going to be, we're not gonna, you're going you're gonna to like him even less next week. Okay, so read chapter 22. Okay, so here's what happens. So David asks him, like, well, don't you have a sword or a spear? And he says, I haven't brought my sword or any weapon because the king's business was urgent. Again, another lie? Who knows? Okay, yes, but whatever. Verse 9, the priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. And David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. And so David has been provided for, right? He's got, he's got weapon. He's got food. And now he's on his way. And as Terry said, we don't see any companions here. He said that he had companions off in the other place, which it seems like it's pretty shady. But Jesus affirmed that he shared his bread with his companions. So there's got to be some companions. There's got to be someone. When, when he fled, he brings some guys. We're going to see he's going to end up in the cave of Adelam, and he's going to gather to himself this kind of like band of men, a bunch of, bunch of ruffians, essentially. And so there are going to be companions based on the fact that Jesus affirms that it's true. Actually, he tells the priest he vouches for them being true. That's right. But, whether, but now, like, I don't know, trust anything David says, you know. So who knows? And that's the nature of a lie. Once you lie to me, I'm like, well, when does it stop? I don't know. Okay, so he's got his food, he's got his sword, and Ahimelech has been seen by Doeg. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, then here's what's going to happen. Verse 8. Oh, no, no, we just did all that. Verse 10. Then David fled from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath, 
But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Remember talking about, is David the king? He's perceived as a king. Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. How does David feel when he gets identified? He's scared. So what's he do? Starts drooling. Yeah. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gates and letting saliva run down his beard. That's weird. Achish said to his servant, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I? This is a great line. You should use this with your subordinates. Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? A great line. You don't have enough lunatics in this organization. Bring me one more. Must this man come into my house? Okay, so again, is this a clever deception? Or is this a humiliating and, and, and ungodly strategy? What do you, how do you take this? You go ungodly strategy? Brilliant. Who's, who's on team brilliant? Fetzer, what else? Okay. What's brilliant, Andy? Who would come up with that? Is he shrewd? They're, we're called to be innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. We have to walk in wisdom towards those are without. We have to be, we have to be wise. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe the deception is shrewd. Maybe it's a lawful act in war. Or maybe the fact that he's drooling all over himself is an indication that he's fallen into some, that his fear has gotten in the way. And the text, this is the nature of narrative. It's hard to say. It doesn't tell us. You just have to like, you have to look at it and how to try to draw your conclusions. John? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody dies, at least from this one. She just has to go take a shower or something. All right. Kat? I wonder who has done something as a pretense to get themselves out of it. Everybody, right? So whether, even if it's wrong, it doesn't mean that we don't do the same things because there's something wrong with us, right? But I do want you to see this one who is this glorious template of the king. I'm telling you, the luster is starting to come off. More is to come, right? This, this what is it? Something about a, there's some illustration about like, you know, that the, the, the veneer is, is wearing thin on David, right? At the very least, okay? So here's what I want you to do. Read chapter 22. That's for next week. Read chapter 22, and then just go back and make some, draw some lines from 21 to 22. And we're going to unpack a little bit. What is the ultimate consequence? What happens? David, David's deploying strategies. He's trying to be wise. He's trying to stay alive. He's doing the best he can. We're going to see some of the fruit of that next week. Okay? Good enough? We'll see you next week.